Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am Anthony Livingston Hall. Martin Luther King Jr. famously dreamed that his four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But nothing betrays what a nightmare that dream has become, quite like his namesake, MLK III, being all over TV this week, damning two white Democratic senators to hell for blocking federal legislation to ensure that blacks enjoy the same unfettered voting rights as whites. As it happens, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is behaving like a Manchurian Democrat. And Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona, like a McCain maverick wannabe. More to the point though, only latent racism explains their lost cause championing of the filibuster. Because it makes no sense for them to insist that democratic partisanship to protect the voting rights of blacks is a vice, but that Republican partisanship to suppress the voting rights of blacks is a virtue. Uh, mind you, MLK III should have spared a little of his damnation for black Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, because it seems he's doing such a good job of passing for white, nobody is questioning why he's standing by, as members of his party systematically roll back voting rights, which blacks like Dr. King and John Lewis gave their lives and suffered all manner of harm to get, respectively. Frankly, it's foreboding enough that emboldened Republicans seem hell-bent on forming a Jim Crow 2.0 nation, where King's now-grown children are still judged more by the color of their skin than by the content of their character. But his children's children are now living in a nation where systemic efforts are underway to sanitize the teaching of slavery and its racist legacy to effectively whitewash the black American experience. After all, if the institution of slavery were just a blot on the otherwise glorious lily-white history of the United States, what cause would blacks have to complain about systemic racism, right? <laughs> Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate for governor of my home state of Virginia, through this march back to the future into dystopian relief last year because he won by somehow convincing white suburban moms 
that having their children learn about slavery would be far worse than slavery was itself. Graduate students use critical race theory to examine the myriad ways race and the legacy of racism affect a person's life experiences in America, especially with respect to education, employment, housing, health care, and the criminal justice system. But throughout his campaign, Youngkin framed it as a liberal plot to impose the guilt of 19th century slave masters on white middle schoolers by poisoning their little minds with facts about the horrors and lingering effects of slavery. One could hardly blame his democratic opponent for ignoring him until it was too late. Because what Yankin was doing was as patently disingenuous as it was patently absurd. I mean, you had to be stupid enough to believe that Virginians were suddenly living in the kind of alternate reality Cracker depicts. And, and that, for the uninitiated, is the 2020 movie that has a white supremacist suddenly living in a world where blacks rule and whites are enslaved. Our motto says, Virginia is for lovers. <laughs> well, it's clearly for stupid people too. Which is why, under Youngkin's leadership, the kind of farce that made our state an international laughingstock last week was not only inevitable, but will continue to happen. It stemmed from Republicans in the state legislature executing their crusade to sanitize any part of American history that shows white people in a racist light. And so, in their Orwellian zeal to even whitewash references to slavery in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, they betrayed their racist intent by attributing offensive remarks to the former black slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass. <laughs> of course, anyone with half a brain knows that the Douglass-Abraham Lincoln debated was the very white pro-slavery senator Stephen Douglass. But this obliges me to note that Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. should be as revered in the annals of American history as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Arguably, MLK has already been given his due. In fact, Monday's MLK Day inspired this episode. But, as its title indicates, even though Douglas has been relatively overlooked, I think he's the greatest person America has ever produced. I've been making this claim for decades, primarily because Douglas personified both the contradictions and promises that define America's founding documents, and he did so 
like nobody else has, or ever could. Unfortunately, even black historians have been so indoctrinated with white historiography, they invariably try to qualify my claim as follows. You mean the greatest black person, don't you? But no, I mean, and have always meant, the greatest person, period. This is why I have felt so disheartened over the years, as Douglas suffered one historical slight after another. It's bad enough that white historians and politicians rarely accord him even an honourable mention when discussing the great Americans. But it smacks of fratricide that black ones accord him little more. Only this explains why Douglas was never the obvious choice when it came to honouring the first black American with, among other things, a national holiday, which went to MLK, a monument on the National Mall, which also went to MLK, a face on any dollar bill, which is going to either Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, or a face on a stamp, which went to Booker T. Washington. And don't get me started on the National Museum of African American History and Culture choosing the life and times of Oprah Winfrey for its first special exhibition. I decried the museum's myopic and craven choice, as well as Oprah's self-adulating and self-indulgent acceptance of it, in African American Museum paying Trumpian tribute to Oprah. Shame! on June 11, 2018. Given all that, is it any wonder Time magazine did not include Douglas on its list of the 100 most significant figures in history, which it published in 2013? Nobody would quibble with the likes of Jesus, Napoleon, Mohammed, William Shakespeare, and the aforementioned Abraham Lincoln. But the list also included such ignoble Americans as Joseph Smith, Grover Cleveland, and George W. Bush. Yet, conspicuously, it did not include MLK either. And clearly, Based on all the accolades accorded MLK, this oversight alone might be enough to declare the entire list fatally flawed. Except that these are the glaring historical slights that perpetuate white historiography. But thankfully MLK's accolades are such that no fair-minded person can deny that he belongs. Which is why, in contending that Douglas belongs too, I cannot go wrong 
by juxtaposing key features of their biographies. As it happens, I did just so, over 15 years ago, ironically enough in a blog commentary, paying tribute to MLK, titled, Maul at Last, Maul at Last, Thank God Almighty, a black is on the mall at last. On November 14, 2006, as follows. Douglas was born in slavery. MLK was born in freedom. Douglas spent his formative years on a plantation, scrapping with his master's dogs for food to eat. MLK spent his in relative luxury, dining with America's black elite. Douglas taught himself to read and write. MLK attended America's best schools, including Morehouse College and Boston University. Douglas escaped from slavery, settled in the North, and began his political activism by leading challenges to segregation laws, which were as strictly enforced in the antebellum north as they were in the deep south. MLK graduated from university, settled in the south, and began his political activism by accepting calls to lead blacks who had already begun the now seminal Montgomery bus boycott. Douglas had no peer among blacks. MLK had Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X, whose message of self-defense and black nationalism resonated more with many blacks, for whom, by any means necessary, was far more inspiring and galvanizing than, I have a dream. Douglas left no trail of marital infidelities in his wake that could compromise judgment of the content of his character. MLK did. So much so that in my resigned attempt to defend his character, I was constrained to title a commentary. Martin Luther King Jr. was also a womanizer. So what? On January 4... 2006. Douglas lived long enough, to age 77, not only to see his dream of abolition fulfilled, but also to become a professional man as a U.S. Marshal and Recorder of Deeds, an international statesman as U.S. Ambassador to Santo Domingo and Haiti and a political champion for yet another cause, women's suffrage. MLK died too soon, at age 39, not only to see his dream of racial equality fulfilled, but also to pursue any ambition beyond the struggle for civil rights. Douglas's published works on the fight for freedom from slavery are voluminous. MLK's On the Struggle for Civil Rights 
are modest by comparison, for obvious reason. I refer you in this regard to articles from one of Douglas's many newspapers, The North Star, as well as to his three autobiographies, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, My Bondage, My Freedom, and Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. It might also interest you to know that eyewitness accounts by the likes of famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison suggest that Douglas was every bit the orator MLK was. Indeed, it's arguable that his What to the Slave is the Fourth of July speech, which he delivered on July 5, 1852, is even more provocative and inspiring than MLK's I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered on August 28, 1963. That is how I ended my juxtaposition of these two great Americans way back in November 2006. As it happens, though, MLK's own son unwittingly affirmed my take just this week. <laughs> Frankly, it seemed more than providential that MLK III marked Monday's MLK Day by leading a protest march across the Frederick Douglass Memorial Bridge in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I kid you not. Unfortunately, apropos of getting Douglas the recognition and honours he deserves, I have neither the political nor the literary clout to do so. Which brings me to Adam Gopnik and his essay in the October 15, 2018 issue of The New Yorker. It's titled... The Prophetic Pragmatism of Frederick Douglass, and has this defining and intriguing subtitle. He escaped from slavery and helped rescue America. Truth be told, as I read it, I felt like I did when I was in grade school, and my big brothers were fending off schoolyard bullies for me. As a critically acclaimed novelist, reporter, lecturer, and social critic, Gopnik has the kind of influence I lack. If you're not familiar with him, think of a more sober, less acerbic version of the late Christopher Hitchens. In any event, I strongly recommend you read and share his essay. Because the more people do, the more likely Douglas will get his due. As it happens, Gopnik ended his essay by juxtaposing Douglas's biography with that of no less a person than Abraham Lincoln. In doing so, he mirrored the juxtaposition of Douglas and MLK's I delineated just moments ago. But here's a little Gopnik teaser for you. And I quote, 
Lincoln remains the saint of American democracy. Yet his ascent from the backwoods to the White House was, for all its rigors, a far easier ride. In his legacy, as prophetic radical and political pragmatist, in the almost unimaginable bravery of his early journey, in the resilience of his later career, in his achievements as a writer, activist, crusader, intellectual, father, and man, the claim that Douglas was the greatest figure America has ever produced seems hard to challenge. End quote. And that's only a tease of why his essay amounts to such a vindication of my assertion. But I'm obliged to end this episode where I began, namely, with the vexing struggle to protect the voting rights of black Americans. <laughs> Frankly, this recurring struggle is so insidiously racist, it's surreal. I mean, think about it. First there was the 15th Amendment, which granted voting rights to blacks in 1870. Then came Jim Crow 1.0. Then there was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which outlawed those racist Jim Crow voting practices. Then came Jim Crow 2.0. Then there was the Freedom to Vote, John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2021, which was intended to fend off efforts by Republican state legislatures across the country to limit the voting rights of black folks. Then came the aforementioned filibuster-loving mansion and cinema to make that bill dead on arrival. But why should blacks continue fighting legislatively for this basic human right? This, especially given that it should have been guaranteed to them, as it has been to whites, at least since emancipation, over 150 years ago. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. I fear the last parenthetical line of that famous Langston Hughes poem, let America be America again, resonates most with black Americans, even today. No doubt that's because many white Americans seem to believe America was never intended to be America to blacks. And in a moment of unwitting candor, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell revealed on Thursday 
that their Jim Crow 2.0 efforts are intended to ensure that America will never be. Frankly, abolitionists like the Black Douglas and White Garrison must be rolling over in their graves to see blacks today hinging their voting rights on the whims of two whites from southern states, no less. This is why it might be time to give up the fight for voting rights and prepare to fight the Civil War 2.0. The whites denying those rights have been asking for. That's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening and... Until the next Talking Opinions, uh, goodbye.